Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Thanks for joining another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Major General James Cowan, who had a very distinguished career as a British Army officer, serving in both Iraq and Afghanistan in the 2000s. Since 2015, he's been the CEO of the Halo Trust, uh, the oldest and largest humanitarian landmine clearance organization in the world. Years after conflicts end, people are still being killed and injured by landmines that have remained hidden. Uh, to talk more about efforts to combat this enormous challenge, let me turn it over to Major General Cowan. Major General, thanks for being here. Dan, thank you so much. It's good to be here. So could you first explain what is the Halo Trust? I mean, I, I gave you the, 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 the blurb, but what is it exactly and why was it started? Yeah, well, we are a humanitarian uh, demining charity. It means that we've been going for 32 years. We employ 9,000 people around the world and we work in 26 countries. And what we do is we save lives. Uh, we stop people being killed and wounded by landmines. Then we give jobs to people. So we take people who might be in the fight, they might be victims of war, and we give them a job. They might have been in the Taliban, uh, they might have been in ISIS, they might have been in FARC, and we take the gun off them and we give them a metal detector and they find landmines and other explosive devices. So they're saving life. But then we give them a job and then we resettle them on that land that's been cleared. So it's a long-term livelihood. Where do you all operate? So our biggest country is Afghanistan. Uh, we have 3,500 staff there. Oh, my word. Which is a very large operation. Um, one we're very pleased with. Uh, many people view Afghanistan as problematic, actually. We are doing some outstanding work. Then we're pivoting away from classical, traditional landmines uh, laid by the Soviets uh, to clearing improvised devices that have been laid in the current conflict. So that's our biggest operation. But we're in many other countries that you might call post-conflict. So Zimbabwe, Angola, Cambodia, Sri Lanka. These are a litany of Cold War conflicts where landmines still remain in the ground. And these devices will kill and maim decades after the event. They're hermetically sealed in plastic. They don't have water ingress. And they are just as lethal now as they were in the 1960s or 70s. Oh, my word. I know enough about this to be dangerous, but somebody won the, the Nobel Peace Prize for, for anti-demining work. Can you talk a little bit about that? And is there a military argument for landmines today? And if so, what is it? And if, if there's not a military argument, what is the argument against it? So I think that, uh, first of all, there is a clear correlation between three different worlds, the world of security, uh, the humanitarian world and the world of development. And we're yep. sitting at the interface of those three things. Yep. It is in the United States's national interest to remove explosive devices, which could fall into the hands of America's enemies and uh, be used uh, aggressively against this country or indeed other Western countries. That's the security interest. The humanitarian one is that far more, I worked in as a soldier in Helmand, you know, uh, 64 of my soldiers were killed during that tour, but very many more Afghan children uh, and innocent civilians were killed, far more, about 10 times as many in that time frame. So these things kill indiscriminately. That's the humanitarian issue with them. Uh, 
And then the development issue is that they remain in the ground and they stop people from using that land. The land becomes infertile and it means that uh, people are denied the capacity to make a living. Again, this is sort of my ignorance about this, but what is the U.S. policy on landmines? Isn't there – there was something where it has to do with the Korean War or the Korean DMZ where we've – U.S. military doctrine supports the use of landmines in certain targeted instances. Is that still the case? The campaign to ban landmines is arguably one of the most successful classes of weaponry to have been brought under control. And it has focused on the Ottawa Landmine Ban Convention – which was signed in 1997, a few months after the death of Princess Diana, yeah. who had been one of the principal architects. I want it. to come back to her, yeah. So the United States is not a signatory of, of the treaty. Uh, because neither, of this issue, right? It's partly because of this issue. It is also uh, true to say that neither is Russia, China, Syria, Iran. Yeah, not great company. India, Pakistan. Yeah. These countries are not signatories. Who's the big champion for this in the U.S. Congress? Uh, there are a number of – we have a very broad-ranging caucus of support in both the House and in the Senate of uh, people who support this work. And, and who do you deal with in the U.S. government? Is it the U.S. State Department? Is it USAID or both? So we deal with both. Most of our support comes from the Political Military Bureau. Mm. It's a long-established bureau really? of weapons reduction and abatement. Huh. Um, it deals uh, partly with – uh, legacy conflicts uh, that the United States has been involved with in Southeast Asia, in the Balkans and in the Middle East, uh, a great deal of policy effort to clear up after those conflicts, which is a very honorable one, and a lot of support for other conflicts as well. Countries as diverse as Angola and Colombia are beneficiaries of American assistance. You obviously get support from the UK government. Who are your main partner in the UK government? So in the United Kingdom, uh, the Department for International Development yeah, has... Dissed has a global mine action program. Oh, great. Um, so that is, again, a very uh, useful format through which we can uh, work in many countries um, and do it over the long term. How was Halo Trust founded? Who was the founder of it? We're essentially a fairly maverick organization mm. founded by two uh, uh, characters, both ex-military officers. Um, we're an interesting mixture of people, some with a military background, some with a development background, but all united by a sense of adventure. And those two founders were both ex-British Army officers. They were amazing men in their time and got the organization going. Uh, founded in Afghanistan in 1988. Oh, and really? we've kept going in that country through every change of government, uh, every crisis, like uh, obviously 9-11. You know, we managed to keep going there. And our whole ethos is never to leave a country, never to abandon it, uh, always to carry on and always to be able to stick by the people who we assist. I'm old enough to remember Princess Diana and remember her fondly. But there was a moment where she walked through a minefield or something like this. Talk about her advocacy for this and what am I talking about? Princess Diana came to Angola in 1997 and uh, in her inimitable way, she was horrified by the scale of the destruction brought about by landmines in the Angolan Civil War. Uh, and let's remember that took place over several decades and uh, there are still 88,000 people in that country living with wounds uh, caused it's by terrible. landmines. And she decided to walk through a landmine uh, minefield that had been cleared by the Halo Trust. She did that in the full gaze of the international media. And it was one of those iconic moments. It's one of those iconic Famous. photographs up there with you know, Neil Armstrong or uh, John F. Kennedy or Marilyn Monroe. And uh, it brought this whole uh, cause to international attention. And of course, only a few months later, she herself died. It's terrible. But her legacy 
lived on through uh, the signing of the Ottawa Convention at the end of 1997. Yeah, I, I'd say the death of Princess Diana, I'd say there's sort of a handful of moments in the last 40 years You say, where were you when something happened, 9-11, hmm. when Princess Diana died? I can list sort of only maybe five or six things like that, and that was one of them. That's right. I'm sure every, I think certainly in the United States, that's the case. Everybody in the United States who was alive and cognizant remembers where they were when she, when she died. Yeah. It was great loss for the world. But this is a great legacy. I mean, she, she really helped give you guys a boost. Well, the legacy is uh, more than simply historic. In September last year, uh, her son, Prince Harry, uh, returned to Angola with us. Oh, that's great. And uh, he walked the same road that his mother had taken. And what was once a minefield, once an area that uninhabitable, is now a busy, happy, bustling street mm, on the outskirts of Wambo, one of the great cities of uh, Angola. So let's talk about Afghanistan. How do you guys measure progress? So we've made huge amounts of progress in the original problem, the legacy landmine issue of uh, the Soviet era. But do you count it in like the number of mines you clear? Is that like a metric? Correct. So the metric in input terms is, you know, how many mines we've cleared. The, the output is really what, what is the impact we're having on communities. Let me give you an example. In Herat province, an entire community has been recreated. 10,000 people have been returned to land that was uninhabitable because everywhere in Afghanistan, the land is very fertile if the land can be irrigated. But all the water systems, the canals and ditches uh, were contaminated by landmines. And so they'd become overgrown and the water ceased to flow. And so uh, no agriculture was possible. Through our program, we, we cleared that land and this very, very thriving community is now returned there. So that's the true metric, not how many landmines we've taken out of the ground, but uh, the community the you've created the, or the, exactly. the opportunity you've created. And so landmines breed poverty. Let me give you another example mm. of this. In southeast Angola, uh, landmines have caused communities to be cut off. Those communities have turned to poaching. And what was once one of the most uh, thriving um, centers for the African elephant, there's nothing left. So uh, Angola is adjacent to the Okavango Delta, which is home to 50% of African elephants left in the world. And yet none of them are in Angola. They're all in Botswana, in the Okavango. If we can clear those landmines and stop the poverty that is um, bred by landmines, then we can stop the poaching. And if we can stop the poaching and get uh, elephant back into Angola, then we can uh, get ecotourism, we can get a, a, a biodiversity going again, and then we can restore one of the great ecosystems of Africa. So... You're also in Colombia. Can you talk a little bit about how you operate in Colombia and who laid the landmines and when? So uh, we're all familiar with the Colombian Civil War. I mean, it's one of the longest in history, yeah. 50 years it's been going on. The mines are largely improvised devices laid by FARC and other anti-government um, organizations. So as the peace deal began to emerge two or three years ago, so the notion of clearing landmines became part of that peace process. And so the Halo Trust registered there now seven years ago, and we've now got a, uh, a workforce of over 500 staff in Colombia clearing landmines. Where else are you all operating? So you're in Angola, Afghanistan, Colombia, where else? So it's really where we're not operating, and um, mm. we're in every continent you'd expect 
apart from we're not in North America because no, we're lucky goodness. not to have a problem thank here. Goodness. We're not in Antarctica, nor are we in Australasia, but we are very much active in South America. We're very active in Africa. Europe is a major issue. Where in Europe? So the Balkans remains sure. very contaminated. Really? Uh, Ukraine, the, the recent conflict is a significant problem. And the Caucasus uh, in Abkhazia, in Georgia, and in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, we have very significant operations. Where in the South America are you? Or so America? Colombia is our principal area yeah. of operation. But I'd like to just focus on one thing that I think yeah. is really important. Landmines were a, a consequence of the Cold War. And what we saw was a very, very much a metric of success was the drop in casualties in the early 2000s. What has happened, though, is that... Um, the Driving new, casualties from landmines. Yes. But the new problem is that landmines, which were once caused by nation states laying landmines, now we're talking about non-state actors. Terrorists and Insurgents, gorillas. the Taliban, terrorists, ISIS, FARC, yeah. Al-Shabaab. These are now the people laying these devices, and they're doing it outside of a rules-based system. So, and they're also doing it in cities. So our work is moving increasingly away from traditional landmines towards the clearance of improvised devices. You have a visual of a minefield in the middle of some rural area. Yeah. yeah. So now we're talking about cities. You know, in Iraq, we're in Fallujah. I served there in the British Army uh, in 2004. And, and I know go back there is the CEO of the Halo Trust. And we're talking about a mine belt that's six miles long on the outskirts of that city. Um, we're talking about ruination on a truly biblical scale. Uh, and it's true of Iraq, it's true of Syria, it's true of Yemen, it's true of Libya, and we have operations in all those countries. So we're turning towards this urban and improvised problem. And we're also turning towards control of small arms. A country like Libya, is awash with uncontrolled small arms. And this is um, feeding security issues, feeding terrorism. So this is not only a humanitarian problem, but a national security issue. So how many people die every year from landmine deaths? Well, it depends whether you include improvised devices. Yeah, let's include them. So it's very hard to know because the, the data is very hard to gather in countries. I understand. In places like Syria. Or failed states. or Yeah. yeah. But the, the figures have gone up very alarmingly. I mean, let's take a country like Afghanistan. The numbers of deaths caused by old Soviet landmines has come down. That's the good news story. The numbers caused by IEDs, improvised devices, has gone up sharply and is measured in the thousands. So you, you spend X amount of money every year on clearing landmines, which is really money well spent. But have you measured the economic Job creation and prosperity you're creating over time, over say a five year yeah, period. Yeah, we do you this. Have someone do that. Yeah, we do a lot of work on this. So let's take a, a country like Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, um, as we know, was a vicious civil war. Terrible. Fought between the Tamils and Sinhalese government. What it took was fixed front lines, quite sort of old fashioned First World War type fighting in trenches. And at the end of it, the, the country had some of the densest contamination in the world. So what we're doing is not only measuring. Uh, the clearance of landmines and the uh, smallholder agriculturalists that we put back on the land, but we're also measuring the macroeconomic effects of our work. So I was in Sri Lanka um, back in the autumn, and I went to the opening of Jaffna Airport. Now, Jaffna Airport hasn't been opened in 25 years. Really? And the week I was there, the first international flight took off to India. And that's an amazing achievement. And then because of landmines? Because the whole area was highly contaminated. Really? 
And I mean, there's a big tourism opportunity in Sri Lanka. It's beautiful beaches. It's a beautiful country. Yeah, it's, but it's a country of two halves. And you, you can go to the south and enjoy a lovely holiday and enjoy the beaches, enjoy the food, enjoy the culture. But you go to the north, the beaches are empty. There are no hotels. It is a country that was once thriving and enjoying an amazing culture. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s, mm. people flocked there for their holidays. Ceylon. There's no reason why that can't happen again. How long would it take to make Sri Lanka landmine free or whatever, yeah. whatever your so metric is? So that is exactly is. the, is the phrase. The yeah, Dan, okay. I mean, that's, that's it. So it, it will be free of landmines at the end of 2022. Okay, so now's the time to buy beachfront property in the north of Get, Sri Lanka. Come, you are on it. You're okay, on it. Okay, so we're going to go and we're going yeah. to do this. <laughs> we're going to talk you, afterwards you, about you. this, General. <laughs> but, uh, now's the time. Come, but to be serious, you should, yeah. cut, you know. Um, so it's coming. We're measuring it in over $200 million so a year. So the U.S. does about $200 million a year? Correct. More. Yeah. How much does the U.K. give every year to you guys? So the United Kingdom is, yeah. is contributing through DFID, as I mentioned, yes, yeah. uh, and through another source, the Conflict Security and Stabilization Fund. Yes. Uh, it's not giving on the same okay. level, but it's doing about $33 million a year. So, I mean, the U.K. does, it's ODA, Foreign Aid, Official Development Assistance, They've made a commitment to spend 0.7%. United Kingdom is extremely generous yeah. as a as a size of its economy. It's a global development superpower. It's a soft power superpower. And so, but this is at the edge of hard and soft. And in my yeah, opinion, really as a, as a, speaking as a Brit, I think the United Kingdom should be spending more on this because it's spending 15 billion pounds a year on ODA, on, on ODA, but a tiny amount of it, 33 million. On clearing is weapons. this is this kind of an orphan in the foreign aid world? Like, is it kind of all militaried out? So the aid folks don't see the development angle, and yeah. it's not been kind of made. The argument hasn't been made to them. I think there is a tribalism to. Uh, oh yeah, there's the tribalism. Development totally. sector. Yes, and you know, as an ex-soldier, I am very dedicated to breaking down those barriers between these tribes. I believe passionately that. War is a driver of humanitarian suffering. Yeah, and, and it's it's anti-development. And it's anti-development. And therefore, a greater proportion of aid funding should be spent on addressing the causes of war. I actually think there's probably an interesting report we could do here that looks at the intersection of, we could do some case studies looking at some landmine clearance as a vector of development. And that we ought to be thinking, so the aid world needs to be thinking about this I'm vaguely aware of this. I knew about Princess Diane. I have this positive association with it. It, it has a little bit of a cowboy. I'm using, you know, it's got a cowboy vibe to it. Yeah. And obviously the founders, your founders were yeah. military cowboys. I'm mixing British and American metaphors. You'll excuse me. Yeah. You're a former military guy. I love the military. So I think it's great. You know, and I've been in the biz 20 years and the develop, the soft power development biz. And I haven't made the connection between clearing the landmines and the jobs and the development. Yeah. So if I'm in the biz and I'm not getting the joke, we ought to be doing something with you. I would welcome it. And so we ought to we ought to be looking at some countries, tell some stories, do a conference here, get a report out, get the developmentistas in the room with the security types and the cowboy types who do this, the humanitarian people, the development people, and the security people all talking to each other about us, even like maybe in a working group of these different people. And the fact that it lives in the political military cone at the State Department is, and thank God we're generous, but it's often some kind of corner, if I can't, in the bureaucratic sense. So there's not enough aid bureaucrats touching it or the developmentistas aren't touching it. 
In my mind, we need to be talking about things like Sri Lanka and saying, I actually know this for something else. I did a speech in Pakistan, and I didn't want to compare Pakistan tourism to Indian tourism, so mm. I need to find some neighborhoods. I think, I don't know if there's double the number of tourists to Sri Lanka than there is to Pakistan, but there's like more tourists. Oh, fun, I mean, yeah. so, so Sri Lanka is a global tourism powerhouse, and it's only kind of running on one airline engine, mm. basically, as a result of this conversation, that basically it's only the south. And now that you've opened up Jaffna Airport, and when you and I open up that hotel together in the north, hmm. they're going to double their tourism. They're going to double the number of jobs. There's going to be an yeah. increase. You can measure this as a percentage of GNP growth. There could be one or two points of GNP growth added because you're going to double the tourism in, in Sri Lanka because you guys have fixed this problem, Correct. right? And it's not just tourism. It's the agriculture, the, the garment industry, yeah. agriculture. These things are very much opportunities in Sri Lanka. I mean, but let me take this a bit further. Yeah. This connection between soft and hard power. Yeah. You know, we describe it as soft power. I view it as clearing up after hard power. And the connections are not drawn tightly there's a, enough. There's a tribalism problem. The, there's a cultural problem. There's a language problem. So the British are talking about this fusion strategy. Yes. Now, this is something that I think we ought to be talking about a lot more. The programs that I have in Libya, they operate in isolation from a broader fused strategy. If you really want to bring stability to Libya, you, you need to do more than simply fund particular uh, isolated projects to do with clearing landmines. You need to bring in a whole range of fused uh, interventions to achieve a genuinely strategic effect. And this is where I think the development world struggles. It does not have the sort of strategic training that I think that the defense sector yeah, I agree has. With that. But on the other hand, I think the defense sector struggles with how to fuse development actors into its outcomes. It tends to stop at a certain point and say, we don't do nation building, we're moving on. We ought to bring all these folks together and do a series of roundtables here in, the, in, in London because I'm always looking for a trip to London because I love the UK. I'm up for that. Love the United Kingdom. Love the Savoy Hotel, by the way, my favorite <laughs> hotel in the world. And... Given this conversation and given the fact that you guys are a major force for good and a major source of change, we're not understanding this. We need to kind of take the uh, the observation and insights the Halo Trust has and and put them on steroids. I think this is really interesting. This is Dan's theory of, of global development. There's 100 developing countries, basically. 70 are kind of sort of going to make it. They're kind of, they're going to go the way of South Korea and Japan, maso menos. They're going to have ups and downs and hiccups and stuff. And then you got 30 or so fragile and conflict-affected states, and they're going to be with us for a long time. But at the same time, some of them are going to exit sort of this fragility and post-conflict. And so this, this conversation is a big part of the getting them out of post-conflict as fast as possible. I think we could do some more together on this. I think this is really interesting. Who's the next Princess Diana? Who's your next spokesperson for Well, this? Prince Harry is... Um, is he available? I mean, he's retired or something. Prince right? Harry... Did, is he stay, promised to stay, stay involved with you guys? It's a matter of public record, um, the events of the last month. Yes. But Prince Harry... I don't know what you mean by that, General, but yes. <laughs> uh, Prince Harry uh, is an amazing guy. Oh, he's who amazing. He's committed to achieving the legacy of his mother. So, so, this, so this is one of the things he's going to continue to do. It certainly is. Well, then I think we ought to think about how do we get him. General, what a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 